How's everybody? Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we just thank you, Lord, for, Lord, this season of thanksgiving, Lord Jesus. We just pray, Lord, that you just help us to be thankful, Lord, in everything that we have, Lord, in everything that you've given us, Lord. And we just, Lord, we're thankful for our family. We're thankful for our friends. But most importantly, Lord, we're thankful, Lord, that you have died on the cross for us, Lord Jesus. Lord, that you have paid the ultimate price, Lord, so that we can have eternal life. And we just are grateful for that, Lord. And we just ask, Lord, that you uh, give me the words to speak this morning, Lord, and just challenge us in every way, Lord, possible. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Anybody remember what I spoke of the last time? I'm gonna recap just a little bit. The message title was Living in High Definition. Living in High Definition. And we compared that to our high-definition television that everybody has, some have. And high-definition televisions are great because it's so clear and so crisp and you can see everything and you can see all the wrinkles of everybody's face on TV, right? It's wonderful. But that's the problem sometimes, you know? It's, it shows everything, you know? And when we talk about living life, living in high-definition we're talking about the fact that living in high definition as a Christian can expose both our strengths and our weaknesses. This is who we are. This is who I am. Some of it you might really like. Some of it you might just really kind of get under your skin and I'm just annoyed with you, right? <laughs> but it's who God made us. And sometimes, because of that, we wear various masks to cover up the ugly truth of who we really are and the hardships of our faith. We don't want anybody to know that we actually maybe have some problems. We got it all together, right? We're supposed to have it all together, right? We're Christians, right? Right, right, right? How you doing? I'm doing great. Fantastic. Even though you just had that fight with your wife on the way here. Nobody did that, right? But the sad truth, as I said last time, is that people don't reject Christianity because they're giving up on God. Instead, they're giving up on the people that represent who he is. They don't dislike Jesus. They just don't like the Christian culture that we have made up, that we've created. Because we're trying to to make it look like it's something that it's really not. Being a Christian is hard. It's difficult. God said we would face many trials and tribulations. And the fact is what landed Jesus on the cross was the crazy idea that common, ordinary, broken, screwed up people could be godly, could actually be chosen by him. What drove his enemies crazy was his criticism of the perfect religious people and his acceptance of the imperfect, non-religious, messed up people. So turn to somebody next to you and say, aren't you glad that God accepted you? (laughs) Messed up as you are. He refused the righteous. He refused the righteous and he accepted the sinner. Amen? I want you to watch this video with us. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? Where are the sinners? Well, of course, they're on the bar stool, right? The 
church pew? There's a lot of truth to that. And when he was talking about those people, I believe he's talking about the Pharisees. And today is a continuation of, of what I had started the last time. But the title of the message today is The Accidental Pharisee. The Accidental Pharisee. What do we know about the Pharisees? The Pharisees were passionate defenders of Jesus, but slowly got too smart for their good and became enemies of Christ. Somewhere along the way, they lost touch with who God really was. They got caught up in the law. We know that the traditions of the Pharisees consisted of legalism. How many times do we get legalistic about things? The Pharisees loved rituals and habits. They lost the spirit of love in their heart. Do you get that? They, they, they loved rituals and habits. There's a lot of things that we do. And maybe God moved one way this week. So we think that we can pattern that next week and get the same results. We think we have God all figured out. If we just do it this way, right? We say so many prayers when we get up, so many Hail Marys, right? Absolutely not. They made a show of their righteousness. They wanted everybody to see how righteous, how holy they were. They would perform in public places just to get attention. They were proud and arrogant. Isaiah chapter 29, verse 13, says this. The Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules they have been taught. They come near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We know how to say all the right things. But what is really in here? And believe me, what's really in here is going to come out sooner or later. Right? When you least expect it, it's going to come out. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Amen? Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 30 and 33. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, Come and hear the message that has come from the Lord. My people come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them, you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice. When all this comes true, and it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. And as long as our only image of a Pharisee is that of a spiritual loser, we will never recognize the clear and present danger in our own lives. I mean, when, when, when you think of, and when, when I just said everything that I said about what a Pharisee is, you're thinking, loser, right? Loser. 
That is not me. But we need to recognize the danger that all of us face to being just that. To representing something that stinks to the world. To represent something that is everything that God is not. I don't believe that God is a legalistic God. Amen? God loves us. God wants to see you reach your fullest. And whenever you try and fall into some legalistic way of doing things, you're trying to be something that God didn't ever create you to be. But we need to have love in our hearts. It's much like eating at Denny's. No one wants to go there. We just end up there. Or maybe like McDonald's. I don't know. Maybe some of you are sitting there saying, I like Denny's. (laughs) I'm sorry. Sorry about that. Whatever restaurant you really don't like but you seem to go to a lot, that's the one, okay? We don't ever want to go there, but we always end up there. That's the life of a Pharisee. We don't want to be that, but it's so easy for us to go there, to just find ourselves there. It starts out really innocent, a desire to be in front of the following Jesus line. We step out in faith, make a few changes, clean up areas of sin in our life. We're passionate about Jesus Christ. We're passionate about where we're going in Christ. And along the way, as we are moving forward in our life, in our relationship with Christ, we happen to notice those that are maybe lagging behind a little bit. They're not quite where you're at. So now it's time to make a decision. Are we going to keep our eyes on Jesus? Or are we going to turn our focus on those that are lagging behind? This is the trap that so many of us get caught into. In our passion to serve Christ, in our passion to move forward, we tend to compare ourselves with where everybody else is. Well, did you see how they raised their family? Did you see what, what they let their kids watch? Or, man, I would never, ever do something like that. Because, man, I'm, you know, the minute that you start to compare yourself as better than somebody else, or you look down on somebody else for where they're at, you're a Pharisee. Did you hear me? You're a Pharisee. The problem isn't recognizing the difference of where you are in your walk to somebody else's. It's what you do with that information that can be a problem. The minute you use the information to look at somebody in a lesser way, you become an accidental Pharisee. So here's some warning signs. I'll give you five warning signs that we're becoming an accidental Pharisee. If you'll turn to Proverbs chapter 6, verse 16 through 19. Here are six things that God hates and one more that he loathes with a passion. Eyes that are arrogant, a tongue that lies, hands that murder the innocent, a heart that hatches evil plots, feet that race down a wicked track, and a mouth that lies under oath, a troublemaker in the family 
warning on adultery. What was the very first one? God hates haughty eyes. The disgusted and disdainful look of arrogance. Looking down on others. A disdain for those at the back of the line or those that aren't keeping up with where you you are in your walk, or at least that's your perception. That's the first one. The second one is a spirit of exclusivity. Is this an exclusive club here? When thinning the herd becomes more important than expanding the kingdom... You hear that? When thinning the herd becomes more important than expanding the kingdom or raising the bar becomes more important than helping people climb over it. We've got a real problem. How many times do we raise the bar and then we just watch people as they struggle to get over that high standard that we've set, that we've set? God said, come as you are unless we can come as little children. The message is very simple, but we tend to complicate it. The third one is extra biblical rules. We like to add rules to things. Extra biblical rules and expectations, legalism. We think we've moved on from old school legalism because we no longer judge people by what's in their refrigerator. But now we judge people by what's in their driveway and how big their house is. Maybe you're not judging people this way. But how many times do you catch yourself judging other people because of their things or whatever it is that God maybe has blessed them with? A quest for clone-like uniformity. Everybody needs to be like me, right? Jesus had room for Simon, the zealot, and Matthew, the tax collector. Yet sometimes, the more biblically grounded we become, the less room we have for anyone who hasn't learned all that we've learned. The result is a circle of fellowship that's tighter than Jesus' circle of acceptance. We make it hard sometimes for people to be a part. We talk about, you know, these, these chairs should be full. Should be full. But sometimes we just have a tendency to make it too hard for people to live up to rather than saying, come as you are. We love you just the way you are. I love you just the way you smell. I don't remember who it was, but there was a pastor in New York City that I remember sharing a testimony about somebody that came in, a homeless person that came into his church. And the stench of this guy was just, like the minute that he walked in, I mean, the whole place stunk. And this man came to the altar for prayer. And he said it was just unbelievable, but he knew that he needed to love on that person. And he said the minute that he put his arms around him, he said that smell turned into like the most, the best perfume you could ever imagine. He said the smell that I smelled was nothing like the stench. And I believe that's 
how things are when we allow God's love to flow through us rather than putting up a dam and a wall. But if we just allow God's love to come forward, I believe that all of those things will just cease to even exist. And the last one is gift projection. The belief that my calling is everyone else's calling. And what that does is it disfigures the body of Christ. You know, the body's made up of many parts, right? The hands, the feet, the head. It disfigures the body by insisting that ears become eyes and hands become feet. My gift, my calling is everyone else's calling. See, we don't all see things the same way. And sometimes we get offended because people don't see things the way that we see things. But I believe that God has given us many different opinions. He's given us many different perceptions. And all of them, all of them are needed in the body of Christ. My wife offends me sometimes, and she's not here, so I can say this. But sometimes the things that she says offends me. But then I have to really go back and question my heart. And you know what? Sometimes she's right on. Probably most of the time she's right on. But it's my religious attitude sometimes that I have to deal with. And she just calls it like it is. And then I'm like, I hate that. But I believe there's people here. There's people that God puts in your path to really help you stay grounded and really help you stay close to reality and to step back and say, okay, who am I? What have I become? Am I an accidental Pharisee? Am I at Denny's again? I did not want to go here. Turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 through 13. All of those things I listed, the problem with that legalistic, arrogant thinking is that we disqualify those that God qualifies. We are disqualifying those that God qualifies. He qualifies the unqualified. This story here is all about somebody that was probably one of the most unqualified, in our eyes, people that we can think of. Matthew. Let's read this together. As Jesus went on from here, from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I want to read this to you in the message version. Passing along, Jesus saw a man as work collecting taxes. His name was Matthew. Jesus said, come along with me. Matthew stood up and followed him. Later, when Jesus was eating supper at Matthew's house with his close followers, a lot of disreputable characters came and joined him. Disreputable, offensive. Those that had probably an odor to them, the prostitutes, all of his tax collector buddies. These people were all coming to meet Jesus. When the Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company, they had a fit. 
Drove them crazy. Lit into Jesus' followers. What kind of example is this from your teacher? Acting cozy with crooks and riffraff. Who does he think he is? Who let that riffraff in the door? This is a social gathering of, you know, the highest class. That's why we have security out here, right? I meant greeters. (laughs) Jesus overheard shop, overhearing this, shop back. Who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? Go figure out what the scripture means. I'm after mercy, not religion. I'm here to invite the outsiders, not coddle the insiders. How many of you know that God isn't here to coddle the insiders? He's all about the out, outsiders. So why did Jesus come into the world? Clearly, he says, to call sinners. Those that they know that have a terminal disease, those who are desperate, those who are hurting, those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are weak, those who are weary, those who are broken, those whose lives are shattered, sinners that know that they're sinners. The messed up people, that's who he came for. Peter said it. He said, depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, verse 5, he said, This is a faithful saying worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to what? Save the sinners of whom I am foremost. I am the worst. Say that together. I am am the worst of sinners. If God only came for the righteous, there wouldn't be anybody in his kingdom. Because in Romans chapter 3, verse 10, it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. Not even one. But there are many that think they are righteous, and unfortunately, God can't help them because they have no need. The first step to solving any problem is what? Recognizing that there is a problem. The first step to getting help, the first step to letting God come in and help you with your situation is first recognizing that I need help, that I'm sick, that I'm in need of a savior. People don't come to Christ for a solution unless they understand they have a problem. We're talking about evangelism 101. If we want to go out and we want to reach the lost, what do we have to do? We have to first make them understand that they need a savior, that they're lost. They don't come for healing unless they know they have a disease. They don't come for life unless they know that they are dead. Someone once said, this then is conversion, to accept the death sentence and then the acquittal of God. Jesus came to expose us as sinners. That is why his message was so penetrating and so forceful. Because he forced, he, he exposed, he stripped away everything that they were all about, that facade, that mask, everything that, that they had put up. He stripped it all away and they were naked, exposed, realizing and convicted, I need you, I need you, God. And that's exactly the way the church ought to be. When people come in here, we don't need to sit here and tell them, I don't know if you know it or not, but you need some real help. I don't know if you realize it, but you have a little bit of a 
odor problem. Maybe the next time you come here, you could, you know, just freshen up a little bit. That's all we're saying, right? Not asking too much, right? You know, comb your hair just a little bit. You know, is this ugly sweater day? (laughs) Okay, where was I? Jesus came to expose us to sinners. That's why the message was so penetrating. He stripped away everything that they had. And when they came into his presence, they realized what a sinner, what a failure they were. When we come into God's presence, that's why, you know, when we worship, when we stand here and we sing these songs, it's not just singing songs. It's inviting the presence of the Holy Spirit to come in here, to be a part of our service, to be present with us, to convict us, to purify us, so that we realize that, you know, maybe what I said this week, maybe that was wrong thing to say. Or maybe those things that I did, maybe I shouldn't have done that. Maybe I need to come forward and, 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 and repent and ask God, for forgiveness. It's not about trying to expose other people's failures. It's just about bringing them into the presence of God and let God fix their problems. Because guess what? We all have problems, right? Whether it's on the bar stool or it's in the pew, we're all sinners. You're never going to win a relative, a friend, or anyone else, for that matter, to Christ unless they know that they need him lest they know that they need him. And that's why I believe it's so important the example that we set and the life that we live every day says more than anything that we could ever say. How we live our life. People should look at us and say something's different. Something's different. Or when they find themselves between a rock and a hard place, when they find themselves you know, in that place of impossibility, you're the first one they're going to go to because they know that there's an inner strength. There's something about you that there's something in there that's steady and sturdy as a rock. They might not know his name, but hopefully you've already sold them on the message of Jesus Christ by the way that you live. So, you know, the selling part of it hopefully is easy because of the life that we live. And that doesn't mean we have to be perfect. We're not perfect. But I think it also means that we need to sometimes say, hey, you know what? I messed up. We're all hypocrites. You know, a lot of people say, just like this man in the, in the video, I'll never go sit in another church pew again. So unless we go out, there's a lot of people that have that feeling about church. They're all full of hypocrites. Well, guess what? We can always use a little bit more, right? So let me ask you this. Who among your neighbors, friends, etc., do you think are most likely to receive the gospel? Think this through for a minute. In your life, in the people that you have contact with, who do you think are the most likely to receive it? Do you think it's the devout, religious, and respectable people? Or do you think it's those who may be ungodly, irreligious and socially unacceptable because if there's any scripture 
that should caution you against prejudging. It should be Matthew chapter 9, verse 9 through 13. What do we know about Matthew? First of all, we know that his name was also Levi. I don't know, I'm not sure exactly why, but a lot of these people had two names. But we know that his name was Levi. We know that he was a tax collector for for Rome. He was a publican, a position filled by Jews contracted by the Romans to collect taxes. Tax collectors were highly, highly despised and equated with sinners. They were the most wretched sinners in town. They would take bribes from the rich and they would extort the middle class and the poor. They took advantage of people. They were considered traitors. They were the worst of the worst. But as Jesus was walking along, what did he say? Matthew, come follow me. Now he only had 12 disciples. What did he see about Matthew, the worst sinner in the world? What did he see about him, the most unqualified There's something about Matthew that stood out to him and said, he's the one that I want. There's something about you that God is saying, you're the one that I want. There's something there that God qualifies the unqualified because he doesn't see you for who you are today. He sees you for what you're going to become. He sees the potential that's inside of you. And contrary to what many had uh, may have been the expectation of many, he saw something in him, and guess what? He got up and followed him. He actually got up and followed him. He actually left everything that he had. So obviously there was something that Matthew saw in Jesus that he said, I want what he's got. I want that. Say no more. He was probably making all kinds of money on the side with the taxes. He had to pay a certain amount of taxes, but he was... You know, whatever he collected over and above that was his. So he was probably making a pretty good living. But he left it all. So what happened after that? He throws a party in honor of his new master. He has a party at his house. Guess what? The worst of the worst came to the party. And again, the Pharisees, they go nuts. They're offended by all the riffraff that's at this party. God has stooped to the lowest level. What is he thinking? He's going to give Christianity a bad rap. Hanging out with all these losers, as the Pharisees might say. And his response in verse 13, he rebuked them. Sacrifice without mercy means nothing. He implied that their religious devotion lacked the quality of mercy or they would not have been so despised that or they would not have so despised sinners in need of salvation they lacked mercy they lacked love they were being legalistic they were trying to act it out so just some things in closing here some observations don't prejudge yourself or others Jesus sees people not for what they are, but for what they can become. He died to save sinners. No Christian is perfect, only forgiven. A saint is a sinner who just keeps on trying. A saint is a sinner who just keeps on trying.
Churches grow out of weakness, not strength. We're willing to accept the weak, the imperfect members, helping them to grow. Helping them get over that bar. Don't confuse separation with isolation. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 14 through 17. This is one that the pastor used last week. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wicked have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Blau? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Bible says to be in the world and not of the world. Unless we're in the world, unless we are in and among those that need help, those that need a savior, we can't reach them. So you can't have fellowship with sin. You cannot engage in the wicked deeds of others. But as I said, while not of the world, we have been sent into the world. To be the salt of the earth, we must mingle with the meat. To be the light of the world, we must shine in the darkness. So I just want to have you stand right now. I just want you to close your eyes for a minute. honest reflection, if you're reflecting upon your life the way it is today, if you see yourself more like the Pharisee than you do like Jesus, then I believe we need to repent. I believe that God is calling us to repentance. If there's those that you can think of maybe that you have offended because of religious attitudes I believe that God is saying you know we need to make a change Father I just pray Lord right now Lord Jesus Lord that you would help us to recognize Lord those areas those legalistic attitudes that we have sometimes Lord Lord I pray that you would just help us to repent of those attitudes Lord that we we would reach those that need you Lord Jesus Lord that we would reach those that are sick Lord that need a savior Lord we just pray Lord that our lives would represent exactly who you are. As Trisha sings this next song, if you feel like that's you, that you need to get right with God, that you need to just pour out your heart, whatever it is, I just challenge you to come forward and and for prayer. Because I believe that God wants to do real work in all of us.
not just some, but all of us are in need of a Savior. Amen?